0: Chapter Two of Brewster's Millions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Brewster's Millions by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Two. Shades of Aladdin. Montgomery Brewster no longer had prospects. People could not now point him out with the remark that some day he would come into a million or two. He had realized, as Oliver Harrison would have put it, two days after his grandfather's funeral a final will and testament was read, and, as was expected, the old banker atoned for the hardships Robert Brewster and his wife had endured by bequeathing one million dollars to their son Montgomery. It was his without a restriction, without an admonition, without an encumbrance. There was not a suggestion as to how it should be handled by the heir. The business training the old man had given him was synonymous with conditions not expressed in the will. The dead man believed that he had drilled into the youth an unmistakable conception of what was expected of him in life. If he failed in these expectations, the misfortune would be his alone to bear. A road had been carved out for him, and behind him stretched a long line of guideposts, whose laconic instructions might be ignored but never forgotten. Edwin Peter Brewster evidently made his will with the sensible conviction that it was necessary for him to die before anybody else could possess his money and that, once dead, it would be folly for him to worry over the way in which beneficiaries might choose to manage their own affairs. The house in Fifth Avenue went to a sister, together with a million or two, and the residue of the estate found kindly disposed relatives who were willing to keep it from going to the home for friendless fortunes. Old Mr Brewster left his affairs in order the will nominated Jeremy Buskirk as executor, and he was instructed in conclusion to turn over to Montgomery Brewster the day after the will was probated, securities to the amount of one million dollars provided for in clause four of the instrument. And so it was that on the 26th of September young Mr Brewster had an unconditional fortune thrust upon him waited only with the suggestion of crape that clung to it. Since his grandfather's death he had been staying at the gloomy old Brewster house in Fifth Avenue, paying but two or three hurried visits to the rooms at Mrs. Gray's, where he had made his home. The gloom of death still darkened the Fifth Avenue place, and there was a stillness, a gentle stealthiness, about the house that made him long for more cheerful companionship. He wondered dimly if a fortune always carried the suggestion of tube roses. The richness and strangeness of it all hung about him unpleasantly. He had had no extravagant affection for the grim old dictator who was dead, yet his grandfather was a man and had commanded his respect. It seemed brutal to leave him out of the reckoning, to dance on the grave of the mentor who had treated him well. The attitude of the friends who clapped him on the back, of the newspapers which congratulated him, of the crowd that expected him to rejoice, repelled him. It seemed a tragic comedy, haunted by a severe, dead face. He was haunted, too, by memories and by a sharp regret for his own foolish thoughtlessness. Even the fortune itself weighed upon him at moments with a half-denied melancholy. Yet the situation was not without its compensations. For several days when Alice called him at seven, he would answer him and thank fortune that he was not required at the bank that morning the luxury of another hour of sleep seemed the greatest perquisite of wealth. His morning mail amused him at first, for since the newspapers had published his prosperity to the world, he was deluged with letters. Requests for public or private charity were abundant, but most of his correspondents were generous and thought only of his own good. For 3 days he was in a hopeless state of bewilderment he was visited by reporters photographers and ingenious strangers who benevolently offered to invest his money in enterprises with certified futures when he was not engaged in declining a gold mine in colorado with 5 million dollars marked down to 450 he was avoiding a guileless inventor who offered to sacrifice the secrets of a marvellous device for three hundred dollars, or denying the report that he had been tendered the presidency of the First National Bank. Oliver Harrison stirred him out early one morning, and, while the sleepy millionaire was rubbing his eyes and still dodging the bombshell that a dream anarchist had hurled from the pinnacle of a bedpost, urged him, in excited confidential tones to take time by the forelock and prepare for possible breach of promised suits. Brewster sat on the edge of the bed and listened to diabolical stories of how consciousless females had fleeced innocent and even godly men of wealth. From the bathroom between splashes, he retained Harrison by the year, month, day and hour to stand between him and blackmail. The directors of the bank met and adopted resolutions lamenting the death of their late president, passed the leadership on to the first vice-president, and speedily adjourned. The question of admitting Monty to the directory was brought up and discussed, but it was left for time to settle. One of the directors was Colonel Prentice Drew, the railroad magnate of the newspapers. He had shown a fondness for young Mr Brewster, and Monty had been a frequent visitor at his house. Colonel Drew called him my dear boy, and Monty called him a bully old chap, though not in his presence. But the existence of Miss Barbara Drew may have had something to do with the feeling between the two men. As he left the director's room on the afternoon of the meeting, Colonel Drew came up to Monty, who had notified the officers of the bank that he was leaving. Ah, my dear boy, said the Colonel, shaking the young man's hand warmly. Now you have a chance to show what you can do. You have a fortune, and, with judgment, you ought to be able to triple it. If I can help you in any way, come and see me. Monty thanked him. "'You'll be bored to death by the raft of people "'who have ways to spend your money,' continued the Colonel. "'Don't listen to any of them. "'Take your time. "'You'll have a chance to make money every day of your life, "'so go slowly. "'I'd have been rich years and years ago "'if I'd had sense enough to run away from promoters. "'They'll all try to get a whack at your money. "'Keep your eye open, Monty.' the rich young man is always a tempting morsel after a moment's reflection he added won't you come out and dine with us tomorrow night End of chapter 2